Hello, everybody. This is Volts for May 4th, 2022. Volts podcast, Fran Moore on how to represent social change in climate models. I'm your host, David Roberts. One of my longtime gripes about the climate economic models that outfits like the IPCC produce is that they ignore politics. More broadly, they ignore social change and the way it can both drive and be driven by technology and climate impacts. This isn't difficult to explain. Unlike technology costs, biophysical feedbacks, and other easily quantifiable variables, the dynamics of social change seem fuzzy and qualitative, too soft and poorly understood to include in a quantitative model. Consequently, those dynamics have been treated as exogenous to models. Modelers simply determine those values, feed in a set level of policy change, and the models react. Parameters internal to the model cannot affect policy and be affected by it in turn. Models do not capture socio-physical and socio-economic feedback loops. But we know those feedback loops exist. We know that falling costs of technology can shift public sentiment, which can lead to more policy, which can further reduce the costs of technology. All kinds of loops like that exist among and between climate technology and human social variables. Leaving them out entirely can produce misleading results. At long last, a new research paper has tackled this problem head-on. Fran Moore, an assistant professor at UC Davis working at the intersection of climate science and economics, took a stab at it in a recent Nature paper, Determinants of Emissions Pathways in the Coupled Climate Social System. Moore, along with several co-authors, attempted to construct a climate model that includes social feedback loops to help determine what kinds of social conditions produce policy change and how policy change helps change social conditions. I am fascinated by this effort and by the larger questions of how to integrate social science dynamics into climate analysis. So I was eager to talk to Moore about how she constructed her model, what kinds of data she drew on, and how she views the dangers and opportunities of quantifying social variables. All right, without further ado then, uh, Fran Moore, welcome to Volts. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about um, some recent research of yours that came out earlier this year and sort of some related issues. So sort of by way of preface, you know, I've been looking at climate modeling <laughs> my whole career, intimately familiar with climate modeling. And one of the things I've always thought about it is we put in these values for what we think is going to happen to the price, you know, and then just watch the model play out and I've always thought, well, what's actually going to determine the outcomes here are our, uh, you know, social and political processes, mm -hmm. which are not in the model. Mm -hmm. So really the models, you know, amounts to a wild guess and we're all wallowing in an uncertainty. And we just have to live with it. You confronted the same situation and being a much more stalwart and ambitious person than me said, hey, I'm going to try to get the social and political stuff into the model so to make the model better. So I have all kinds of questions about that, but let's just start with the fact that in 
conventional climate modeling, these sort of socio-political variables are treated as exogenous. Mm -hmm. So just maybe explain to listeners what that means for them to be exogenous to the model. Yeah, so exogenous means that they kind of come in from outside. So as the researcher kind of using the model, you kind of, you have to specify that. So in particular, typically when we're thinking about climate change, those really important kind of exogenous variables are kind of the ambition of climate policy, whether that be in terms of, say, like trajectories of carbon prices or targets for temperature or targets for emissions levels. Typically, those are things that that you set, and either that they, they kind of appear exogenously in two ways. So one is in climate modeling, right? You kind of take some radiative forcing trajectory or some greenhouse gas concentration, and you ask, what does the climate system do in response to that? But it also um, comes up in in other types of modeling, like energy modeling, where these these policies appear exogenously as constraints on the model, right? So you mm. you're kind of asking an energy model to tell you like what's the least cost pathway for getting to say a two degree temperature target or to a kind of certain carbon kind of concentration limit uh, in the atmosphere, and those are both versions of exogenous kind of inputs of like p- kind of policy into climate relevant modeling. Yeah, so so the upshot there is the modeler is telling the model what policy is going to be, basically specifying the trajectory mm-hmm. of policy and then mm-hmm. asking the model, given that, given that, what will happen? Mm-hmm. And so what it means to make it endogenous then is allowing social and political factors to be affected by other variables and to affect them in return inside the model. Mm-hmm. So what does it look like f- for something like this to be endogenous? Like what is the what does it mean to us? Yeah, so the way it works in our model is that, you know, climate policy becomes endogenous. So we don't we don't specify it. Um what it does, it kind of arises from modeling of kind of more fundamental kind of social, political processes um, that, you know, we think, you know, are going to drive or enable kind of climate policy as it, as it might play out over the future. Um, and so by kind of taking that step back and kind of seeing this policy not as just something that, you know, we're going to specify and ask what happens under this policy, but actually kind of something that, that emerges from the system itself, then we can, you know, the we don't specify the policy, right? It's something that comes out of, you know, our model structure and our parameterization. Yeah. So on one hand, that seems like exactly what we want, right? <laughs> like let's, you know, sort of specify some initial conditions and then maybe ask the model, like what, what will people do on policy later? Like well, that's one of the things we want to know, right? But on the other hand, it's intuitively to me, it sounds impossible, like trying to predict the future and exactly the way predicting the future is impossible. So just like to start with, I, when I think about social and political, you know, forces and variables, you know, I could just imagine an infinite number (laughs) of them (laughs) or an infinite, infinite number of ways to sort of conceive of them. So how do you narrow the, you know, of all the kind of social and political forces you could imagine, how do you narrow down and try to force that into something manageable? Like which variables are you, are you choosing here? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, let, let me let me just take a minute to say that. I mean, it's actually not obvious that this is what you want to do, right? Um, and <laughs> because I think you know, a lot of climate modeling um, has taken the view that the goal of this is to actually inform policy, right? right? And the goal of the modeling is to say, okay, look, you policymaker, if you do X, then Y will happen, right? And if you do Z, then you know W will happen. Right. Um, and if that is the goal of your modeling exercise, then, you know, you don't want policy to emerge endogenously, right? You want to be able to specify, right, you right. know, some kind of possible counterfactuals that you can then take the results of your model and tell policymakers about, you know, just how bad climate change will be under these different um, cases. You know, the reason why that is unsatisfactory, I think, as the only approach is that I see two main reasons. So one is just scientifically to me, it seems un unsatisfying in that human decisions are like the single, like most important, like determinant of how the climate system <laughs> is going to evolve. Right. And if we just like exclude them from our modeling, like we don't really understand the system as a whole, right? And so we, it's just very unsatisfactory. But there's also a practical application too, in that, you know, we're not just here trying to inform mitigation decisions, right? We're trying to help adaptation increasingly so at this point. Yes, and right. not being able to tell adaptation decision makers about the probabilities of these different emission trajectories when your single largest uncertainty is between different like emissions pathways, you know, that's that's really unsatisfying for is it's kind of, you know, not what we need for adaptation, right? We kind of really want to be able to put probability bounds over that in order to kind of support much better adaptation uh, decision-making. And so that was part of the motivation. That's such an important point. I think I just want to emphasize that for a minute. It's one thing, if you're a policymaker contemplating mitigation, you want the sort of if-then statement, like if I do this, what will happen? But if you're contemplating adaptation, you really need to know what's going to happen. <laughs> you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like you need to know what's the weather going to be or else you can't make coherent uh, adaptation policy. So yeah, it is a sort of different set of needs and, and is underserved, I guess, by current models. So, um, you know, this is why you might want to attempt this. So let's get into how you attempt mm -hmm. it. And sort of all, uh, are there, you know, when you're choosing sort of these variables, these feedback loops that you're trying to include in the model, like, where do you start? Where do you look? Are, is there some existing literature or existing loops you can sort of adapt and put in? Or are you just starting with a blank piece of paper here? Well, so it was it was definitely a process. Um, and one of the, you know, one of the starting points was this, this kind of observation that we do want to be focused on feedback loops in that. And so this is a certain style of modeling that's sometimes called like system dynamics modeling, where you're really focused on the coupling between different feedback loops because like they tend to be really important in driving the dynamics of the system over long time periods. And if you have, you know, if, you know, these reinforcing feedbacks, particularly if they're coupled to each other, you can get very kind of complex, like nonlinear behavior emerging from the model. Um, and that's what we kind of wanted to make sure that we're allowing for that. Right. Um, and so we did have a focus on trying to identify these feedback loops and, you know, essentially we, you know, we started with an interdisciplinary team of people and we kind of, you know, started brainstorming, like, you know, based on, you know, our knowledge, like what is there in theories around like psychology, social psychology, sociology, mm -hmm. political science that might be relevant here. And then we kind of did a, you know, um, a literature review across these different potential feedback loops, kind of looking for 
for evidence within the, in like a really diverse range of literatures about these dynamics that might be relevant to the system that we could then kind of kind of take and incorporate into this model. So I've got a couple of questions about that. But for, for, for one, let's just start with an example. You know, we're talking about these feedback loops, these social uh, policy feedback loops. Just give us an example of sort of how a change in one thing might trigger a change in another thing might trigger a change in policy. Like mm-hmm. spin us through one. Yeah. So one that, you know, some of your familiars might, some of your listeners might be quite familiar with is one that we incorporate into our kind of emissions or energy component. Um, and this is a kind of learning by doing feedback. It's like, mm. it is uh, kind of represented in a lot of energy system models these days. Right. And this is a phenomenon where like new technologies are tend to be really expensive, right? But then you, you know, you get these cost reductions um, or you tend to get these cost reductions with increased deployment. Um, and so, you know, your technology gets cheaper, so it gets deployed more, so it gets cheaper, so it gets deployed more, right? So that's one of these reinforcing feedbacks where there's quite a lot of evidence on it um, across kind of different energy technologies about how large that effect tends to be. Some of the more, the ones that are more like, you know, the evidence for them is more qualitative or perhaps more debatable mm-hmm. um, would be things like we have a feedback from policy change to public opinion, right? And this is this idea of an ex- uh, the normative force of law or an expressive force of law, which is described in some legal literature. Um, and it's the idea that, you know, policy change itself can signal to people um, what is kind of desirable behavior or kind of desirable outcomes. And so then you can get this reinforcing feedback where you get kind of some change in the law that then later drives public opinion in that direction because it's kind Mm. of signaling something. Um, And so that's that's the kind of feedback that we allow for in, in the model. Those two great examples, because they seem like sort of on two ends of the spectrum, like the learning curves, you know, those are, I guess, kind of a, a socioeconomic process, but, but there's tons of data on them. There's mm-hmm. tons of, they're, well, they're very well understood and well modeled and sort of quantified. And so I can imagine getting those in the model relatively smoothly, but mm-hmm. then you go to something like, you know, to what extent does passing a policy serve as a kind of social proof, which then shifts public opinion, which then makes the next policy slightly more likely. Like I can conceptualize that loop easily. Like, you know, I can understand what it means on a qualitative level, but what, how do you begin to quantify that? What are, what are the data sources that would even feed into that? Yeah. So that's really, and this is an issue that we ran into in designing the model is that a lot of the evidence here is coming from uh, more qualitative disciplines, right? Yeah, so yeah. legal literature, political science literature, right. right? And that doesn't mean it's not evidence, right? I mean, it, you know, we have really kind of, in some cases, quite rich case studies about, you know, showing some of these feedbacks kind of in operation. Um, but it does make it challenging when you're then trying to kind of take that and kind of put an equation on it and like, you know, right, right. make it value. into a number, make yeah. it into a series of numbers. That's uh, that's That's the part that breaks my brain. Yeah. And so, I mean, what we did was, well, one thing is that we allowed for a lot of uncertainty, right? And so in our final kind of set of runs, right, we, what we do is we kind of sample over, you know, a lot of uncertain parameters in the model and we kind of try and say, okay, given the fact that, you know, we don't know a lot about, you know, this particular parameter that describes the strength of the feedback or even the existence of this feedback, 
you know, what can we say about probabilistically about where emissions might go? Right. The other thing that we do is we um, we do a kind of hind cost exercise to like jointly constrain these parameters. So even though we can't necessarily, we don't have data that like is re- allowing us to say, you know, this feedback in particular, we can take like a part of the model. So in this case, I think it was like our opinion our and our policy and our adoption and our cognition module. So it's like a subset of the model and then we can start it in the past and then we can with like ob- observed, uh, I think it was like 2010 or something was when we first had data for of distribution of public opinion as well as carbon pricing. Um, and then we can just, you know, run the model forward using, again, sampling over a very large set of the parameter space. And then we can look at how well that evolution of, of opinion and that evolution of policy kind of actually matched what happened over, say, 10 years. And based on, you know, the match under different parameter combinations, we can probabilistically say, you know, well, this set, this kind of set of parameter combinations is more likely true than this set of parameter combinations, just because it it kind of seems like it matches, it it, it kind of generates a better match uh, in the model over the last 10 years. And so that's our main uh, we have we kind of do two versions of that for different parts of the model, um, these kind of hindcast parameter constraint exercises, yeah, and that's yeah. primarily how you know our empirical evidence comes into the model. And we we would really like you know it would be great if we could you know use other you know data from other you know fields to constrain some of these parameters more precisely. But I just in, for some of these ideas like that just doesn't exist at the moment. Yes. Uh... This gets at two things <laughs> I was going to ask about, but but you jumped straight to one of my most uh, one of the questions I was most interested about is, you know, just for for listeners' sake, one of the things that's done with climate physical models to sort of test them out is, as you say, backcast, meaning like if we went back in time and used this model, would it accurately predict what actually happened? Right? It's sort of like, does it work on the past? Gives you some indication whether it works on the future. And I was wondering, like. If you ever think something like this, a model like this with these sort of social features, some of which are fuzzier than others, could ever get accurate enough to accurately backcast, <laughs> you know, like, so what did you find when you, when you backcasted? Like, do, do, are, are you comfortable that you have a set of feedback loops now that at least accurately capture the last 10 years? It, it is tricky, right, in that some of these feedback loops play out, like we just, Ideally, we would have much better historical data on some of these social type measures that allow us to kind of go back much further. And because we only have data, really, I think it was like 10 years, it might even be less than that. Mm. Um, You know, we're able to say, you know, like, well, over this relatively short time period, the model seems like it's not like going completely crazy. But also... You know, part of the the goal of incorporating these feedbacks is so that you have the potential for things like tipping points and stuff like that. And so you don't want to kind of over constrain. I think this is sometimes you see critiques of things like energy models that they kind of mm-hmm. over constrain it in order to like precisely match historically what's happened. But then if some of those constraints can like, you know, change in the future, right? And, you know, we're projecting out a long way here, then you yeah. want to allow for that to happen too. And so I think it's like, it, it, it's a balance between those like, okay, what do we have, you know, evidence for like in a broad sense of the word in terms of the structure of these feedbacks, as well as like, can we like use the evidence as we have it to to constrain it? And like, you know, so yeah, the model seems like, you know, there's uncertainty, right? We And, you know, we can get wide ranges of behavior, but like more or less, 
you know, it can kind of track this, um, you've seen this like gradual like expansion of support of climate policy in right. these like OECD countries, which is our focus, as well as, you know, a relatively slow increase in the car- in, like average carbon price, which is our measure of policy. Um, and between those two things, they can like constrain some of the parameters in the model, but not all of them. Right. What you'd really want is like backcast a hundred years of, oh, yeah, of, yeah. Of, of, but of course, like, so this gets yeah. to my second question, which is, which is, I guess, sort of twofold is like one, what data do we have? Like what, mm-hmm. what data were you drawing on? And I, and I imagine when it comes to social and political stuff regarding climate change, by definition, there's not data sets going back a long way because the issue itself doesn't go back uh, along. It's relatively new to society and politics, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of decades, which is in modeling terms, a relatively short period of time. So one, like what data do we have? And then two, I guess, you know, this is part of my bigger question of like, of all the kajillions of social and political factors you might imagine trying to get in here. I wonder if some have data available and some don't. And I wonder if you end up sort of, what's the analogy here, looking for your keys under the streetlight type of thing, like, you know, biasing yourself toward factors where there are data available just because there is data and sort of overlooking things that might be important because there is no data? You know, do you you feel like that's a a danger here? I think on that latter question, I mean, I think because we build into the model the potential for, you know, these feedback loops, right, where we don't necessarily have strong kind of quantitative data, I mean, I think we're like deliberately trying to avoid that problem, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're allowing those feedback loops to operate uh, in, in probabilistically, right? So, right. Um, and, you know, those are only kind of partially, you know, we can't constrain them directly with data. Like we kind of recognize that, right? There are only limited model outputs and parameters that like we can actually match to stuff that's really measurable in a, in a defensible way. But that doesn't mean that we don't include them in our model, right? That we, we still allow for those effects to operate because they're potentially really important in driving the dynamics. Right, <laughs> uh, right. And, and, you know, just because we don't measure them super well doesn't mean that they shouldn't be in there. Right. Um, in terms of the exact data, so what we really, what's really important is to have repeated data um, of repeated measures over time because yeah. that helps you constrain these, these dynamic systems and that is is tough right because a lot of the you know you have these opinion surveys and then they like you know you have them for one country in one year and a different yeah they change the question Mm -hmm. the question changes so we relied on i think originally we looked at this yale program on climate change communication has like something for the u.s so originally we used that and then you know we we wanted to be representative of more countries and so we used a pew uh question that has been asked repeatedly across about, I think, nine OECD countries since about 2010. I don't think they do it every year, but it gives us a kind of time series of kind of how this opinion is shifting on average across these countries. We have two other measures. So one is on policy. So that measure is carbon pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a fairly straightforward, well, it's kind of straightforward. Is it? Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask, is it straightforward? I was going to ask about it because, you know, explicit carbon pricing policies are you know as as you know a small yes. a very small fraction of total climate policy so are you taking all those other climate policies and trying to translate them into 
a sort of implicit carbon price, or are you just looking at explicit carbon pricing? Yeah, that is exactly the caveat I was about to add. <laughs> that, um, and we are, we are only, we, ideally, we would like to do exactly what you said, right, which is take all these climate policies around the world that all have some kind of shadow cost associated with them in terms that can be quantified in terms of uh, kind of effective carbon price at the margin. And we would, you know, like to take that and add it all up. And that we just can't, you know, like that has not been done by other people. That's a very large, <laughs> a it's a large, very large, large list, undertaking. Right? Yeah. Um, I mean, but ideally that is what we would be using, but we just can't do that. And so instead we use just explicit carbon pricing. So cap and trade system, carbon taxes, essentially. And those, those are pretty well documented. So don't you worry then that you're only sort of capturing a fraction of policy? Like how do you compensate for that? I mean, I think the important question is like, do we get the change right? And, you know, we're right. not able to say, uh, you know, more than that. We can say, like, we seem like we're matching, like, the rate of change of explicit carbon pricing, um, how that matches up to other, you know, measures that would include things like renewable portfolio standards and so on. It's not clear. Um, but those get complicated, too, because those are not, you know, there's a bunch of reasons why you might do them. It's not just carbon, you know, things like cafe standards, right? right? Like yeah. they have a climate component, but they're also about air pollution and fuel economy and saving people money at the gas tank and all those things. So um, I think, you know, it, like that's certainly a direction, you know, I'd like to do more. It would be great if someone else wanted to <laughs> come up with the shadow <laughs> cost of all these different regulations. We would definitely use it. Um, you need a team of, uh, of, uh, of, of eager PhD students that you can de deploy. Yeah, that, that would be great. <laughs> So um, let's talk about then this, you know, one of the sort of uh, significant types of findings that might come out of a model like this is, you know, one of the things we might want to know about the future is given the current sort of trajectory of social and political stuff, when might we see some sort of tipping point? When, when might we see the sort of gradual build, you know, flop over into, <laughs> into sudden action? So you know, I had questions about this, like sort of, you know, the whole issue of tipping points in climate models is, is contentious and goes way, way, way back. And even physical tipping points, which are sort of the direct result of physics, are incredibly difficult to pin down and, and predict, you know, because there's some level of emergent effects that are just difficult to predict from initial circumstances. And my intuition is that social tipping points would be even more difficult <laughs> to, to predict because there's even more sort of fuzzy things going on, even more sort of fuzzy emergent effects that might happen. So do you get any kind of firm predictions about tipping points out of this model and how confident are you? You know, part of the reason we built a model like this was this idea that you can get these, you know, tipping like kind of nonlinear behaviors in the social, political, and technical systems that like, produce emissions. I think if you look back on history, most progress comes out of something like that, right? Like mm -hmm. sort of punctuated equilibrium model, like things yeah. are the same for a while, and then whoosh, a bunch of stuff changes. It's not like actual policy history does not do these gently upwardly sloping lines yeah. that you see in models so often. 
Yeah. And I, you know, the first step then in trying to kind of understand that is to actually have a model that, that like can generate those. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, so our model can definitely do that. <laughs> I mean, it, to some extent it was designed to do that. Right. I mean, we went about, we went around looking for the feedback loops and then we coupled them all together. And that's like inherently going to be a system that, you know, under certain conditions is going to give you like this kind of tipping style behavior. Um, and so, you know, the, the problem, the reason why some modeling communities like don't like this type of modeling is that is, is exactly that reason, right? It's that it can, you know, you kind of allow for, you know, this complex, like, you know, rapidly changing, accelerating behavior under certain conditions. And then, you know, it can, you know, if it, it's not necessarily like super well constrained, then like what right. the future looks like, right? Because right. you're allowing for these rapid changes in ways that like, you know, are going to produce futures that maybe we can't really imagine right now, right? Because yeah. they they have these really like there's a lot of these feedbacks that you know mean that we're in a really different state than we can even imagine now. Because we when we look out, you know, we tend to like extrapolate, you know, from you know the trajectory we're on, right? Rather than accounting for these accelerating feedbacks that of what we're capturing here. And we don't necessarily know what public opinion will do in response to literally unprecedented conditions, right? Yeah. And and so I think, you know, the goal is to try and draw on the theories that we have already, right? That that we have in the social sciences and political science and so on, and to kind of put them together. That's right into my next question, which is, you know, the, the paper mentions trying to learn from past episodes of rapid social change, mm-hmm. you know, sort of previous tipping points. Like what can you pull lessons out of those like durable lessons out of those past examples yeah i mean so you know i think other there there are other uh, strategies that you know might either more kind of quality like kind of like do, do kind of case study examples of like past social change i think here we're trying to like abstract from that a little further and say like what are these underlying dynamics in these like more fundamental processes, right, that revolve around things like social networks and information and political institutions and power. And like, if you recognize the uncertainty, right, and like, that's what we are doing with our 100,000 runs, right, (laughs) then the other thing you can do is you can kind of query the model to say, okay, like, well, what set of combinations of parameters, like, put us in a world where we get like, you know, really positive, you know, rapid transformation and what sets of parameters put us in a world that, that we don't. And you can start you can start to ask those types of questions right. in a way that like, you know, these models with tipping points are not necessarily predictive. And they're yeah, not necessarily right. like fully predictive. And that's not necessarily what they're trying to do. Right. In the sense of like we're gonna have, you know, a tipping point in like 2042. Right. But um they're still lending a lot of, you know, they're they're still informative about the system and they're still informative potentially to kind of management of that system. Right. And it's just constraining the the field of possible outcomes. Right. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. that's, you don't have to get to a single prediction to be helpful at least and like constraining the sort of range of. Yeah. And so I I think that's really important in that even though, like, so I think people are nervous of the style of model sometimes because, you know, you can get these rapid changes, right. That, maybe make us a little uncomfortable about making predictions like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> you don't want to bet on those things, right? Yeah, I mean, you don't yeah want to that's like... right. <laughs> but it also, it actually, what we find is like, we're actually able to like really constrain the set of temperature mm. um, by say 2100 temperatures compared to just say, like just looking at the range of say representative concentration pathways and saying, 
you know, well, it could be 8.5 and it could be 2.6 right, and we right. just can't put probabilities over those, right? That is a huge range, yes. <laughs> right? And like, we can really say like, well, those are pretty unlikely at <laughs> both, both those ends, right? And, you know, probably we're somewhere in the middle. I, w- I want to get back to that, the sort of, sort of outcome of this, but a couple other questions about it first. Which, mm-hmm. um, almost all your runs or the balance of your sort of model runs that try to capture sociopolitical processes end up with lower emissions than business as usual, mm-hmm. which, which I take it to mean that on balance, these social political feedback loops are moving us in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. A- and I guess I wonder, you know, I've gotten a lot more cynical over the last five years, and I wonder how do we know there won't be loops pushing in the other direction. You know, like one of the big things people are talking about these days is the sort of looming possibility of eco-fascism where sort of, a, you know, a climate impacts cause people to get into kind of a lifeboat mentality and build walls and mm-hmm. ho- hoard the rest of their fossil fuels. You know, so you can imagine feedback loops pushing us in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. So how do you know? How do you exclude those? How do you think about the possibility of negative I think, you know, if I was going to expand the model further, (laughs) um, probably we would maybe pay more attention to those types of potential negative feedback loops. And I think, or, or call them like balancing feedback loops Mm. um, that would like slow down. So, you know, like we did build, I think it's fair to say we built a model to be tippy, right? Because Mm -hmm. we were looking for these kind of tipping points we wanted right. to make sure we had the potential to capture them and like we definitely do <laughs> um but i think you know thinking a bit more about what some of these negative these, these like balancing effects might be and how they might slow down that tippiness um i think is like the way we would want to expand the model and you that the one you talked about is is definitely one you know we thought about um this idea that you know, with mitigation, you're trying to provide a global public good and that difficult at the best of time, then maybe <laughs> as things get worse or are perceived to be getting worse, like it becomes more and more difficult to provide global public goods. And instead, maybe we would focus more on much more local public goods or no public goods at all. And that, you know, switch more into a kind of adaptation um, focus. I think that's definitely a dynamic that you could imagine playing out and that could potentially uh, have some effects in the model, depending exactly, you know, how it was parameterized. I think the other important balancing feedback that we don't have in there at the moment is reaction against carbon pricing. And that probably is important given, you know, you can you can have higher energy prices, but you cannot have them quickly, right? And so <laughs> there, you know, if you if if you're raising like carbon prices very, very quickly, you're probably going to get negative like reactions to that in right. public opinion that will slow that down. And so I think we, we could definitely incorporate more of that into the, into the model. Yeah. It's, it's just on my mind these days because I, you know, I look around <laughs> at the world <laughs> and it seems like reactionary backlash against progress, against progressive, uh, uh, movement is, is very real, very, uh, very present. Yeah, but I, I would, you know, I would also say, like, you know, we're clearly also not in, no longer in a business as usual world, right? So, you know, we have yeah. carbon policies, right, in That's true. many, many countries, right? And we have these accelerating kind of reductions in cost of these, you know, energy technologies. And, you know, what the what this model kind of gets is these spillover effects where, you know, you, you get these, like, 
you can drive down reductions in cost, right? You know, with just a little bit of policy, right? So you're, mm-hmm. you know, if you do have these reinforcing feedback loops, like you don't necessarily need like, you know, really fast, like climate policy, right? To get, you know, some big reductions potentially. And so I think it gives you, by acknowledging that you can have these accelerations in directions you're not necessarily focused on, then it, it can kind of, it can show where there are positive kind of places as well as, you know, and clearly like things are stuck in some places as well at the moment too. All these questions about how to um, kind of get these fuzzy semi-qualitative factors into a model when you're just doing modeling in some sense is kind of an academic question. It's, it's, it's an interesting academic question, but you know, there's not huge practical consequences. However, um, turning to a slightly different subject, namely the social cost of carbon, uh, which, you know, I'm, I'm sure most listeners are familiar with this, but it's basically just an attempt to put a number on um, the total economic damages wrought by a ton of carbon emissions, basically. So, and it's, and it's useful for obvious reasons. Like if you're going to make climate policy, you need to know, you know, on some level, how, how much does it cost? How much does it hurt to emit a ton of carbon? So you can sort of calibrate your cost benefit analysis and, and whatever else. So my question here is on the social cost of carbon, you are also doing something similar to what you're doing in this model, which is trying to capture all the damages. Inevitably, you are getting into difficult to quantify uh, <laughs> areas, you know, like the worth of a species, you know, the worth of another species, uh, the value of intact ecosystems, even the value of a human life is very, you know, fuzzy <laughs> in a matter of values. But here, the decisions you make on these on these fuzzy variables do have practical real world effects insofar as they show up in the social cost of carbon. So in a sense, it, it matters quite a bit how you quantify these things. So I wonder, you know, there's been a lot of critique of the social cost of carbon lately uh, on, a, on a couple of measures. One is that by the time you make all these kind of value judgments, by the end, the sort of precision is is faux. It's it's faux precision. It's you know it's pretend precision. And the other general line of critique is that because certain things are so much easier to quantify than other things, those things are more likely to be incorporated in the social cost of carbon. And you and the things that are difficult to quantify tend to be on the damage side. So in a sense, by restricting your vision to what you can quantify, you are undercounting the damages. So that was a lot of <laughs> quasi question, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the social cost of carbon and how to how you balance these sort of dangers of, of you know, quantification, over quantification, uh, faux quantification, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, so I think there's a, there's a couple points on that. And so on the second point about undercounting, I think that is definitely true, right? And like there are effects of climate change that probably we are always going to be unable to put value, like dollar values on. Things like effects on conflict risk, on lost cultural heritage, right. um, like all those things are, you know, migration is really hard to put a like a dollar number on. Mm-hmm. Um 
And so in my head, it's always helpful to distinguish between the social cost of carbon, like the number that we come up with that is legally defensible and can, you know, survive as it's like dragged through the courts, which it is done, like <laughs> as soon as the US government comes out with whatever number it's coming out with, right, they're immediately going to be kind of sued by everyone, right? And we need to be able to go into court, we need to be able to show defensibly that, you know, right. this number came from you know, sound scientific and economic processes that it, that are kind of transparent and, you know, other people can, can agree with them, you know, and so there's that number. And then there's the actual, like, costs of climate change um, that are probably, like, unboundedly large above that, right, <laughs> potentially. Right. Um, and, you know, those two things are not the same thing, right? And, you know, but we can do as best the job we can at the former, right? And, you know, getting it as comprehensive as we can and um, as, you know, as up-to-date and with a sound science as we can, because, I don't know, why, why wouldn't we do that? Like, we spend an awful lot of time and money, like, documenting climate change impacts and you know the only like formal way in the in which those get into considerations of climate policy and like u.s you know regulatory analysis is via something like the social cost of carbon and so it seems you know somewhat crazy to me that that we would do a lot of these this kind of you know work on documenting the what climate change impacts are and not make that final step of actually trying to incorporate it into regulatory analysis kind of as and when we can so your your take, and I and I have heard this take a lot, is just that even given all the sort of uncertainties and fuzziness, it's better to have a number than not have a number. Yeah, I mean, you can you can you know, it's, it's definitely true that everyone everyone's very willing to give you numbers on just how costly climate policy is going to be, right? <laughs> and how many jobs it's going to cost, right? And and you know how how is how much is going to raise energy prices? And you know, it seems pretty important to have on the the other side of that, you know, some well done accounting on well, what are we getting for this, right? Um, and, you know, like those numbers don't have to just be in dollar terms, which is what the social cost of carbon does. Um, but that is, you know, the language in which a lot of policy kind of operates. Um, right, and right. it's, you know, you're kind of fighting from a, a losing position if you're not kind of able, like, to provide uh, that measure of, of the benefits of, this, of these kind of policies. I mean, are there legitimate critiques of exactly how this modeling has been done over the last, you know, 30 or so years, I think that it's definitely fair, right, to say these models kind of got stuck um, at a certain place. Um, and that in particular, in terms of representing what we know about climate change damages, um, they were really not, you know, where we needed them to be, I think, to have real confidence that they're telling us about what we know about climate change damages. But there's been a lot of work on that to, to fix that, and that some of which I've contributed to over the last kind of 10 years. Um, and I think, you know, the U.S. government is kind of in the process of like updating this number. And I think you'll see a lot of those those benefits kind of being reflected in the kind of revised versions. Right. Well, every critique I've ever heard from, you know, obviously I, I've heard critiques of it from the right, which are just bad faith hand waving. But every every critique I've heard of it from from climate scientists says it's too low. I don't know that I've ever read a climate science assessment of it that's like, oh, you overestimated here. Like, you know, which just like, if the, if over and over again, critiques are finding it too low, it just makes me think that, you know, it might, there might be just some danger in having this kind of too low figure getting stuck in practice. I think, you you know, it's, it's good to recognize that it, that it misses stuff. Um, but it's also, if we had a global carbon tax of, 
$50 per ton, which is what the kind of current number is right now, like we would be in a totally different place than we are right now, right? So it's not that it's, you know, maybe it's low, but it's also like, even if we just take what we're currently counting, right? Yes, like, And we took it seriously as a guide to policy, like we'd be in a really different place, right? And so this is not the fault of kind of, you know, these models that we're not in that place, (laughs) I think. Um, And, you know, these models have been saying for a long time that, you know, the costs of climate change are real, right? And they're positive in the sense that, you know, we should be doing something about climate change, you know, and then we get into these debates around, you know, well, is it high enough to justify like two degrees or, or whatever, but like, you know, that's not the place we're in right now in, in the policy sphere, right? Yes, it would be nice if we could act like there were any uh, social cost of carbon at all in in policy. Mm-hmm. Like above zero, it would be nice if, the, yeah. if we did policy. Uh, one final um, question about social cost of carbon. Another sort of critique is that a lot of the sort of key variables that produce the social cost of carbon are at root value questions. So the, the, the sort of famous example here is discount rates, sort of how much do we value future costs and benefits relative to present day costs and benefits? And there's a long literature of people arguing over what the right discount rate is. You know, it, it, some people argue for a higher one pointing to actually existing markets. They say, look, like this is what our actual discount rate is in practice. And that's the only empirical information we have. So that's what we should use. And then other people say, no, that's if you're going to look at intergenerational justice, obviously you can't use the same discount rate you use for a person investing their own money. You need a lower discount rate to reflect our value of the future generations. And in the end, like that's, there's no empirical way to resolve that that argument. Ultimately, you are Ultimately, you are making a value judgment about how much we value the future and what you decide that figure is absolutely shapes in a very fundamental way the values that that you end up with. So do you ever worry that we ought to be having that debate over values out in the open in terms of values? Do you worry that sort of this kind of putting a precise number on it obscures the fact that there's a values debate at all hiding behind this. So I, I take a very, like, as you might have gathered from the comments, I, I tend to take a more practical kind of view of the matter <laughs> um, rather than get into philosophical debates. And the, you know, Welcome like the issue with the discount rate is, you know, it does matter, right? Uh, but you know, no matter, like if you are looking at recent risk-free returns on assets, right. And you're arguing we should use financial markets, then you would argue for a very low discount rate. Right. And if you care about intergenerational equity and, you know, for that reason, you would also argue for a pretty low discount rate. Mm -hmm. Right. So those two things are actually like not that at odds with each other in kind of practical terms at the moment. And there's like other people have kind of written about this. Um, the other is like when people say, you know, kind of, well, you know, my personal value judgment is this. Well, okay, that's that's fine. And you can kind of plug that into the SEC models and calculate what that does to the SEC. But as an input into regulatory analysis, like, you know, like the the way in which we carry out these values debates is through through government, right? Through, mm. through political engagement. And yeah. you know, and like that is, you know, we when the EPA and the interagency working group kind of comes up with the social cost of carbon, right? They are applying you know, these discount rates, which 
they do represent something about the values, you know, how we're going to value the future under like various different kind of epistemic arguments, you know, and, and that's part of our democratic decision-making process. Right. And that it's not, it's not divorced from that. Right. And just cause, just cause there are values involved doesn't mean that it's not something that like belongs in, in policy. Cause you know, policy is a representation of our values. Right. And, right. Um, so I don't, I don't like really see the tension there, um, in terms of like how it's kind of actually is applied. Yes. And once again, um, you got to have a number, <laughs> you got to make policy, you got to do something. So, uh, you know, you can't just sit around stuck in your, in your, uh, philosophical musings or I can, but policy, policymakers can't let's turn to a final subject. I've, I've kept you a long time, but I want to touch on one final thing, uh, a recent comment in nature that you wrote with Zeke Housefather which comes from a very different direction than your paper about the social determinants of climate change, but sort of oddly arrives at a very similar destination. <laughs> so just to describe for listeners sort of what that comment was about, what the, what the research it was describing. So this was, a, this was a kind of accompanying comment on a recent paper by Malta Meinschausen, um, which really added up the, you know, kind of looked at what countries have pledged for their kind of net zero commitments. Um, and in this, and that, that paper, what they do is they, they kind of add them all up, they estimate what that does in terms of emissions and kind of show that um, if fully realized, right, these long-term pledges kind of really get us really close to that, that two degree kind of Paris Agreement target. I'll pause and emphasize that because I think that's, somewhere close to becoming conventional wisdom among super climate nerds, but I really don't know that the public at large has heard this yet. But so what the paper found was if all countries do what they say they're going to do under their Paris pledges, we might just hit the two degree target. Like that's a, that's a very big deal. It doesn't seem like that news has really gotten out yet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. And it's something that I kind of, when I give talks and stuff, I, I kind of try to make sure to say is that, you know, we're, we're making progress here, right? We're, we're, we're bending things. Um, and certainly in terms of where people, you know, and one thing economists, you know, often think about is like expectations are important, right? Yes. Um, and if businesses and investors um, and planners, right, really expect things to be going in a certain direction, then kind of, kind of those capital allocations will flow accordingly. And Right. It becomes self-fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they kind of like bring themselves into actuality in, in, in some ways, although not fully, obviously. Um, and so that that was, a, we were kind of commenting on, on this paper. And then what we did, and I have to give Zeke like the vast majority of the credit for, <laughs> uh, for this, but was to pull together not just the, the current Meinschausen study, but also a number of other papers, including the one that we've just been talking about, including my paper, mm-hmm. um, that have also tried to kind of look at probabilities of temperature outcomes under different emission scenarios by 2100. Um, and, you know, there's a number of different approaches. Some of those might just look at the effects of current policies. Some might look at 2030 pledges. Some are kind of more fully probabilistic, like there's a recent study out of resources for the future that, you know, there's some various expert elicitations combined with some statistical modeling work to look at, you know, distributions of, of emissions and temperatures. Um, but they do collectively, they do provide a much tighter temperature bound than if you were to just look at the range of, uh, say, RCP scenarios. Right. So what is the, what is the, and your, your paper on the social determinants also came in roughly the same range. So what is, 
you know, given when you gather all these models up <laughs> and sort of average them out, what sort of range of temperature can we reasonably say we are headed towards now? Yeah, I mean, so we find, and then it does match, you know, what these other studies have found using very different methods, right, is that you, we put a lot of probability math in this range between two and three degrees. Um, and that that can definitely kind of go up, particularly on the high end, um, you know, based on kind of uncertainties in the climate system. And so, right. you know, if we're more unlucky on carbon cycle feedbacks or on like what the climate sensitivity looks like, we could definitely be, you know, above three, um, even getting towards four. But, you know, the, you know, you'd have to say that, like, you know, the probability math right now is, you know, two-ish on the low end, um, maybe below that, depending on what happens with maybe carbon capture, say, or, um, and then, you know, between two and three, essentially. Yes, which is, you know, and it's just worth saying, and, and I think you mentioned this earlier, that, you know, 10 years ago, or, or 20 years ago, even, four or five or six mm -hmm. or even eight, mm -hmm. you know, were, were uh, on the table. And I think it's fair to say that, well, I don't know if this is a, a, I don't know if there's common agreement on this, but I think once you're getting up above four, that's where you get into like, does advanced human civilization mm -hmm. <laughs> persist mm -hmm. type of questions. Whereas between two and three, you know, is bad but non-catastrophic, I guess, or I don't know, like this is, this is something I've, I've been circling around with a lot of recent guests. I feel like we had this IPCC paper that, that talked about the difference between 1.5 and two in very helpful, clear terms, you know, like mm -hmm. here's what happens at two that won't happen at 1.5. But what I feel like we need is that same thing between two and three or for the gradations between mm -hmm. two and three, because that now looks like where we're going. And I, at least, don't feel like I have a great way of describing what that means, what those gradations between two and three mean. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is the, like, are, are, does this, is this supposed to make us, <laughs> how are we supposed to feel about this, Fran? Are we supposed to, <laughs> are we supposed to be optimistic? Are we supposed to be happy? Are we supposed to be still filled with dread? Like what is between two and three mean? I mean, I think, you know, you have a, a appropriately nuanced uh, and, and mixed <laughs> set, of, set of feelings about this that, uh, you know, like, you know, based on just the impacts we've seen so far and, you know, the, you know, the kind of extreme events, heat extremes, rainfall intensity extremes right. that I think are really even, you know, taking climate scientists by surprise in some cases, like, you know, where we, you know, I don't know, last summer, right, in Canada, these like records being broken by like four degrees, you know, just well, right now in India and, and, and Pakistan, right? Yeah. So these really kind of dangerous extremes, um, like now, right, when we have, you know, almost maybe 1.5 degrees of warming. And so it, that's certainly enough, I think, to worry about um, at this range of, of two to three. But, you know, obviously, there'd be an awful lot more to worry about if we thought we were really getting up to four and five degrees of warming by 2100. And that um, the fact that we can increasing with in, increasing confidence start to rule out those those really extreme rates of temperature increase, I think it's definitely good news. Right. Um, but there's also plenty to worry about um, at this this. <laughs> you know, more moderate, um, range of warming as well. Yeah. That's just such a complicated thing to explain to a, to a, a public, you yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. it's better than disaster, still bad, kind of optimistic, but also we need more. It's, 
Yeah, I mean that's why that's why things like the social cost of carbon can really help you know because like you know <laughs> right. it's designed to be to think about the margin right so like for that additional ton of CO two like how bad is it right you don't have to say like you know climate change is a disaster or it's like or it's solved right like we're always going to be at this margin right of like you right. know should we do more right and you know the social cost of carbon can really help you help you balance that you know recognizing that it's it's uncertain and there's a lot of um, you know, there's a lot missing from it. So I think in those real world cases where it's like, you know, we're in the middle somewhere <laughs> um, and we should probably do more, but you know, how much more, you know, um, it, it does kind of help you in those. I, I think the other point too, is that given this, you know, from various directions in the literature, there's increasing like sense that we can narrow down this range of warming mm-hmm. that should be informing what our climate modeling looks like. And I think, you know, and what these climate impact studies are doing. And, you know, we have, you know, a lot that look at RCP 8.5, which we think is probably quite unlikely now. We have a lot that look at lower levels of warming, um, and we really need something more in between if we're going to start providing kind of really serious advice to, you know, planners and governments um, about adaptation. Yeah, so final question then, uh, and it gets back to this sort of clipping off of the catastrophic edge edge cases, you know, one of the big um, uh, debates in climate science is how to treat these sort of uh, what are called tail risks. Mm-hmm. These sort of you know these ends of the spectrum where you have the kind of low probability but extremely high impact <laughs> possibilities, and you know the sort of Martin Weitzman's work famously sort of made the case that we're we were misleading ourselves when we make policy based on the middle of the bell curve, mm-hmm. we need to be making policy based on foreclosing these risks because even if it's a small risk, the catastrophe would be so complete that in a sense it's worst it's worth almost anything to avoid it. So in the context of that argument now, it looks like our modeling is reducing those edges, those tails at, at the very least. So does that um I guess what I want to know is like, how should we think about those tail risks at this point? Should we like, is, is the possibility of four degrees or higher low enough at this point that I, as an average citizen should breathe a sigh of relief, or is it still high enough that it sort of activates these sort of Weitzman kind of like do anything to avoid it, uh, reactions? That's a very complicated question for a final question, but I'll, I'll let you I'll let you go for it. I mean, I think for me, like when I think about, you know, Weitzman's writing on, on things like fat tails and the the kind of more catastrophic end of climate damage is like, I think it's important to rec- like, you know, the important there is on the distribution of damages, right? And so that is both about emissions and what the climate system does, but like in my, you know, kind of looking at these systems and like what drives damages and things like models like the social cost of carbon, like what's even more important is like, well, what, te- what does temperature do to, you know, human society um, and the things we care about? And like the tails on that, I think are really large. <laughs> um, yes. like, we, that, like that is not super well constrained and, you know, <laughs> yes. they're like, you can really get, um, you know, quite heavy probability math at some quite large damages at moderate levels of warming, you know, under plausible, you know, um, scenarios of how just how sensitive um, human systems are to changes in climate. Um, And I think, 
you know, like even if we we think we're narrowing in the temperature range, we're not necessarily that's not giving us a huge amount of confidence, and that we're necessarily narrowing in on um, constraining the damages because right. I think our the uncertainty bounds on those are still really enormous. Um, and then certainly for you, we know, you know, for some people, like you know, these these are not distributed equitably, and like you know, there are going to be catastrophic consequences of this level of warming for some communities perhaps many communities um and so like i think that when we do think like the social you know we look at that distribution right we don't treat it as just a central estimate and we we do look at a, a full uncertainty and that uncertainty is large right and that you know mm-hmm. the, that right tail like does pull out the mean um you know the question of how exactly does that translate into policy um I think is again that's a kind of values question, right? About how much do you do you weight these like you know unlikely but but very bad outcomes? This essentially is the question of risk aversion and like preferences over risk, in the same way that like the discount rate is about preferences over time, um, and that's something that you know can also operate like through the political system as well. Um, and uh, I think you know just trying to keep that uncertainty and that full distribution in the regulatory analysis as far as possible is, is good, although it does tend to be the process, those processes do tend to be relatively uh, kind of adverse to uncertainty. Yes, <laughs> yes. They, really, they really don't like it. Mm-hmm. So, so would it be fair to summarize then to say um, that we've, the, the work we've done so far to address climate change and the work we've done so far on climate modeling has somewhat narrowed the possible range of outcomes. So there's some comfort to take in that, but on the flip side, the remaining uncertainty about damages to society and at least the possibility of truly large and catastrophic damages to society are still very much there. So there's no reason to reduce our sense of urgency about policy. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. And even if you look at even just the social cost of carbon we have right now, right. And you look at yes, again, we're so far short. We're of- so far short of it, right? And so, you know, even just that by itself, like you don't even need to get to kind of fat tails and what's excluded, right? Even that would say, you know, we should definitely be doing more than we're doing right now on a purely kind of cost benefit kind of basis. The risk of doing too much seems. Yes, that's <laughs> right. We're definitely in a place where where we're going to get benefits by doing more. And like, you know, once once we, you know, once we do a lot more, we can argue about that margin. But right now, the net benefits are definitely in terms of like, you know, more, more ambition. Right. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, that seems like a great place to close. Uh, thanks so much for coming on and uh, thanks for all your research. Thanks so much for the great question. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.